Today we continue in our series called Disciple, a study in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark chapter 2 today. I want to encourage you to uh, make an intentional decision to be here each week of this study. We actually have the schedule available for you in the back of the seat in front of you. There's a card that looks like this. You can take a look at that schedule. Also at the bottom of that is a website uh, that you can go to for information, resources, schedule, uh, also videos or audio recordings of these uh, sermons. And this study, I also want to encourage you to not only uh, receive the monologue that we do uh, on Sunday mornings, but to engage in dialogue around the gospel of Mark. One of the best ways to grow and to learn is to uh, be in the context of community and study together. And so whether that's in your neighborhood, maybe that's uh, within your family, within your workplace, or maybe it's within one of the missional communities here at Desert Springs, I encourage you uh, to be with a group of people and to study the gospel of Mark together. Now, we've already begun this study, but this is a great week to join in Mark chapter 2. You're going to find today, I hope, uh, that it is not only intriguing, it's also powerful as it brings us to a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and who we are as his disciples. So if you'd like more information on missional communities here at Desert Springs, you can find that in the ministry guide in the back of the seat in front of you. You can also go to that website that's there on the screen. Now, in Mark chapter 2, we're going to be uh, in the first part of Mark chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn there with me. If you're not sure where the gospel of Mark is, no problem. In the front of your Bible is probably a table of contents, and Mark is the second book in the New Testament. If you'd like a a piece of paper Bible, we have those on the uh, tables for you in the back. You can, of course, use your digital device, and we'll be using the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB version this morning. And what we'll find in Mark chapter 2 is we think about... uh, For those of us uh, who are are a part of this study, we're going to the Gospel of Mark, we're asking the question, uh, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? One of the things that we'll find is that Regardless of where you are in your journey with Jesus, whether, whether you've been following Jesus for decades or maybe, this is the, maybe you're just here, you're still curious about Jesus, but you're, you're giving him an honest hearing, uh, you're, you're trying to discover Jesus, Jesus calls people like that in the Gospel of Mark, he calls people like you disciples. And so when we come to Mark chapter 2, we're going to ask ourselves the questions, okay, so uh, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And we'll see four key truths that are fundamental to our understanding of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Are you ready for these four key truths? Okay. The kids are back in school. We're all done traveling. This is an exciting time to be alive. We're just beginning this study in the Gospel of Mark. Are you ready for the four key truths in the Gospel of Mark? Thank you. Let's keep that energy up. Four things. You're going to love this one. I know everybody loves this. This is everybody's favorite. Are you ready? Here it goes. Uh, You have sinned. I I actually have a list on each of you here. Um, What? Reading your Facebook. Uh, You have sinned. We have all sinned. Key truth number one. But we'll also find in Mark chapter two something else. That Jesus forgives sin. And moreover, Jesus loves sinners. And we'll end with one that's harder than the first to hear. And so should we. We have all sinned, but Jesus forgives sins. And Jesus loves sinners. And so should we. Because we have all sinned, but Jesus forgives sins. And Jesus loves sinners. And so should we. 
We'll see it here in uh, the the Gospel of Mark chapter 2. We'll pick it up in verse 5. Up until this point, one of the things that we know is that Jesus was gaining in popularity in the region uh, of the universe called Galilee. And he's in a place called Capernaum. And and what's happening is Jesus has been healing people. And it says in Mark 1 that he went around preaching, doing mighty good works. And and people would gather around him. And and what would end up happening is, is the crowds would get so thick that Jesus couldn't even maneuver. And people would have a hard time. And in this particular scene, in Mark chapter 2, it opens with Jesus in a house and people are literally spilling out into the streets. They're just, they're jam-packed in in such a way that people cannot get in to see Jesus. And so what happens is there's these four people who have a paralyzed friend. And uh, the, the four people, their desire is we want to take our friend to see Jesus because perhaps Jesus could heal our paralyzed friend. And it is highly likely that the paralyzed person also wants to be what? Healed. He wants a healing, okay? So they, the story goes like this, that they take these four friends, they take the paralyzed person, they take him up to the roof, they dig a hole or rip a hole into the roof, and as Jesus is there, they lower the man down because what does the man want and what do the friends want? They want to see Jesus heal their paralyzed friend. You with me so far? And this is where we pick it up. Now I want you to think, what does everybody want? Healing, here we go. Verse five. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Hold on a minute. This is either the most uh, socially clumsy and irresponsible thing that Jesus could ever do, or there's something deeper at work. Because what did everyone in the room want for that person or think that that person wanted? Physical healing, but what does Jesus do? Either Jesus is completely aloof and oblivious or he is speaking to something exponentially deeper. Now Jesus here recognizes that there is a sickness deeper than paralysis. That there is a brokenness that goes deeper than simply a broken body. You see, in this quick, brief phrase, son, your sins are forgiven, Jesus shows us that we are all sinners. And that sin is a brokenness. It is a sickness. Soren Kierkegaard was a Danish philosopher. He called it the sickness unto death. It is a sickness that leads to death, the corruption of the soul, the sickness in the heart. It is a sickness that leads to death. More than just the physical healing, Jesus sees that this paralytic needs to be healed in his soul because we have all sinned. Now, some of us are like, wait a minute, I thought sin was just like breaking God's law. Yes, sin is breaking God's law. It's missing the mark. But sin is much more complex than we give it credit for. You know, generally speaking, we think of sin in terms of legal disobedience. Hmm? There's a law, and you broke the what? Law. You trespassed against the what? Law. And therefore, you have sinned. And that's right. Sin is transgressing or trans, uh, transgressing against God's law. But it's more than that. And you know it. Regardless of what the external, the the presenting sin is, it could be theft, it could be deceit, whatever, there's always a sin underneath the sin. 
Uh, there was an old school German philosopher who said that uh, you, the Ten Commandments, you've heard of the, uh, remember when Charlton Heston wrote the Ten Commandments? Uh, Charlton Heston, for those of us that are uh, 40 and under, he was a, uh, an actor who played Moses in the, uh, it was the movie called The Ten Commandments. Was Yul Brenner the pharaoh? Is that, okay, so, so I'm, I'm, I'm scoring points with the 50-plus crowd right now. Okay, so totally culturally relevant. And, um, and so Charlton Eston playing Moses, it, the Ten Commandments, they come down. Uh, my favorite, though, was, uh, oh, what was the Mel Brooks one where he comes down with 15? Well, the 10, 10 Commandments, right? Because the one tablet broke. But in the Ten Commandments, the first commandment is, uh, I am the Lord your God. You shall have, what? No other gods before me. Great, good answer. Now, one of the things that this German theologian said is in order to break any of the other laws or any of the other commands, you always break the first one first. Before you st steal, before you deceived, you first took God off the throne of your heart and put something else, usually a created thing or yourself, which is also a created thing, put something else on. In order to break any of the other commandments, you always break the first one first. And that is called, in the Bible, it's called idolatry. Worshiping an, 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 the untrue God or false gods. You see, we are always, so, so sin always comes from a heart that has taken God off the throne and placed something else on. And whatever is on the throne of your heart, that is what we worship and that is the thing that we look to to justify our existence because we are all worshipers. Every one of us has a throne room in our heart and every one of us has a king that is sitting on the throne and we elevate and worship that thing and we look to that thing or that person to justify our existence. David Foster Wallace, in his address to Kenyon College, he wrote the book Infinite Jest uh, and some others. He says this in his address to graduates at Kenyon College. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. Now, this is a long quote, but it's totally worth it, so hang with me. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, JC, I think he means Jesus Christ, be it JC or Allah or Yahweh or the wicked mother goddess or the four noble truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles is pretty much everything else that you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure. By the way, if you need a visual image of that, <laughs> glad to provide it for you, friends. You worship your own body, beauty, and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you in the ground. If you worship power, you will feel weak and afraid and you will need even more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect or being smart. You will always end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And these are all the default settings. They're the kind of worship that you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the world will not discourage you from operating on your default setting. 
because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom to be the lords of our own tiny skull-sized kingdoms alone at the center of creation. What David Foster Wallace is getting at is the truth that Jesus is speaking to when he says to this man, your sins are forgiven. We are all worshiping something. There is all, for every one of us, a center to our very being. And when that center is not a true God, when it is something that is exhaustible, something that is created, we end up with an eternal dissatisfaction. And that will lead you to soul rot. When the soul is only fed with itself, it begins to wither away and rot. And many of us are trying to block the existential dread that comes from this reality with some sort of anesthetic, some sort of, some sort of created thing that would just at least block the pain receptors in our hearts to this reality that we are broken and sick inside. Of course, the quintessential usual suspects are substance abuse, Sex, money, power, but it can also be things like family, a lover, relationships, a social network, something that's out there that we hold as the very center of our being. And it leads us, because of its inability to satisfy us, it leads us to sin. We are all sinners. And God hates sin, one, because he's totally just, and two, because it is killing his beloved, you. The reason that God rages and furies against sin and evil is one, because he is completely and totally just. Otherwise, he would not be good. But two, it is because that rot is killing you. It is a sickness unto death. We have all sinned. And Jesus here speaks directly to that deeper sickness. Here this paralyzed man thought, if my body, here's what this man probably thought, if my body could just be made whole, then I'd be whole. But there are many of us here today who can walk but do not feel whole. Some of us say, well, if, if only I could get my job Life, my, my career squared away. If only I could find a lover. If only, if only God could, and, and here's, what, here's what tends to happen. This is, this is almost all of us. Almost all of us, there is something in our life that broke, that we had elevated to the throne of our hearts. And we came to church thinking if we just said the right prayers or devoted ourselves enough religiously, then God would have to fix the thing we worship. And many of us right now are angry at God for not fixing the true God in our lives. Just like the paralysis drove this man to Jesus and Jesus drove into his heart, so too there may be brokenness and pain in your life that Jesus is using to bring you in, to reveal to you your true, deep brokenness. That we have all sinned. 
But Jesus forgives sin. Look at verse six and seven. But some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. What's the question that they ask? Who can forgive sin but God? Ding, 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 ding. Here we have this magnificent irony. For Jesus is God in the flesh. They ask a great question. Who can forgive sin but God alone? If anybody other than Jesus would have pronounced forgiveness over sin of anybody, it would be blasphemy. It would basically be saying, I'm God. You see, priests could say to people, if people would bring in a sacrifice to the altar, priests could pronounce and they could say it like this. God has forgiven you your sins. Or because of uh, what I know to be true about God, I'm pretty sure that God has forgiven your sins. But what does Jesus say to the man? I forgive you. Do you see the bold claim that Jesus is making? By the way, one of the things that you'll notice is up until this point in time in the Gospel of Mark, there has been no conflict. There has been no outside pressure onto Jesus. But right after this moment, you begin to see pressure and conflict in Jesus' ministry. Likely because of this claim. Jesus, verse 8, says this. Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this. Uh, within themselves, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority. What was the word? Authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And so he does heal the paralytic, but Jesus recognizes that it is sin that is the Sickness unto death that needs to be healed. We have all sinned, but Jesus forgives sins. He has the authority to do so because he is God in the flesh. Now I want to ask you a question. What did the paralytic do to earn God's forgiveness? Did you see it in the text? Didn't you see it? It said he did all the right religiously moral things. He went to church every Sunday because pastor kept pressuring, pressuring to. He was a devoted member to his missional community. He gave money when Pastor Matt talked about the offering, and he did it for years on end, and then finally God comes to him and says, your sins are forgiven. Remember that? We just read it a minute ago. Now, what did, what, what did the man do to earn God's forgiveness? That man was in such a helpless state, there's absolutely nothing he could have done. And you too. But this is hope-filled news. For there is nothing that you can do to earn God's love, grace, and forgiveness. And so, therefore, you do not need to worry that there is something that you should do to earn God's love, grace, and forgiveness. It is given to you, not because of what you have done, but because of who Jesus is and the work that he has done. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, took on the, what, what the Bible would call the wages or the penalty of sin because God does need to remain just. And so God, because of Jesus Christ's death on the cross, God is able to be both just, there is a penalty for sin, cosmic treason, but he is also gracious and justifying the ungodly. That's why we sing the song, amazing, we wrote it up on the wall, grace. 
And Jesus forgives sins. Now let me ask you this. What did Jesus say to the man? Son. Son, your sins are forgiven. Have you heard those words yet? Daughter. Son. Your sins are forgiven. There's some of us who who recognize that we have heard those words. But there are others of us who are still trying to figure it out. I want to encourage you, at some point in time, it could be this week, maybe it's right now, today, at Direct and Connect, we we have coaches here at Desert Springs that would love to just meet with you and talk this through with you. It's not some sort of rigid plan or structure because everybody's spiritual walk is different and generally it's always a mess. But we got folks here who, who, who believe that they have heard those words and they, just, they would love to talk with you about what that means, what that looks like. Have you heard the words, daughter, son, your sins are forgiven. For we have all sinned, but Jesus forgives sins. And Jesus loves sinners. Look at verse 14. Jesus and his followers, they go out for a walk, and they're walking uh, around uh, the Sea of Galilee. Now, this is interesting. Uh, Earlier in our study, actually last week in chapter one, one of the things that you notice is that Jesus goes and calls uh, a couple of uh, groups of fishermen. One of those uh, fishermen is named Peter, and they were were fishermen uh, around this region. Now, I want you to see what happens next. Verse 14, so they're walking by around that area where uh, he called Peter. And it says, Then passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the toll booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. And everyone in the room gasped. (sighs) You guys are miserable today. Okay, we're going to do it one more time. Okay, you ready? Here we go. Then passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the toll booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. Oh my goodness, can you believe it? It's so like crazy. You didn't even see that coming. And I know why you didn't see that coming because you know what the text says is that Levi's job, where where was he sitting? The toll booth. How many of y'all love a good toll road? (laughs) Right? When the Bible talks about the abomination of desolation, it's talking about toll booths. It's not. I I have a question. Yeah. Can I just... Interrupt John, here for uh, a okay. second. Ladies and gentlemen, John Carroll right, has a random interruption yeah. question. Yeah, um, go ahead. Okay. Okay, so Levi's is there, and you said he's a tax collector. He and is, yeah. Those were really bad guys. Yep. They exploited their people. They extorted them. Mm-hmm. Um, they were seen as betrayers, as pawns of the Roman Empire. Yep. Now, I get it with the paralyzed guy. Okay, Jesus forgave him. He was a victim of disease, his condition. But here's a guy who's a bad guy. He's just sitting there. Jesus says, follow me. And he gets up and he follows him. Yep. And that's how it went. Uh-huh. So no, hey, you know, you, I'd love for you to follow me, but you need to clean some things up. None of that. Yep. And go hang out with these other guys over here who probably hate your guts. And everything's cool. Yep. And that's the way it went. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, for a lot of people, apparently not you, but for a lot of people... That takes some mental work to try to get your head wrapped around that, you know, to be able to process that. And how does that figure? Because most of us, if we think of somebody who's really bad, just, okay, yeah, follow Jesus and everything's cool. That seems a little difficult. So here's the deal. 
If, if that's the kind of thing you'd like to discuss and interact with and maybe even struggle with, uh, on Monday nights, there's a group of us that are meeting at 6 o'clock out in the lobby, and we're working through that stuff. We started last week, had a really diverse group with some great input, some great questions. So I'll be there. I would love to discuss this stuff with you and work through it, and maybe, you know, it's not a monologue or a sermon. No offense. And, uh, but we'll be there at 6 o'clock. If you can't get there at 6, come anyway. Just show up whenever you can, and we'll be there. Sorry for the interruption. Oh, that's okay. Man, that random, completely random, unplanned interruption. Really <laughs> glad, John. Thanks, John, everybody, John. So as John so eloquently said, here is Levi. And tax collectors weren't just a nuisance. They were viewed, generally speaking, as collaborators with the enemy. Because at this time, uh, the, the area that Jesus was kicking around in was uh, this place in and around Jerusalem. And one of the things that we know about that region is that they were under Roman occupation. And so, um, like uh, in the Christmas story, you'll hear things like Caesar Augustus gave a decree and things like that because they were under Roman occupation. There was an occupying force. It may be similar to France in the 40s when they were under Nazi occupation. And there were collaborators, and then there were rebels. And tax collectors were viewed as collaborators. They would extort their own people, line their own pockets, live high on the hog, and give the rest of the money to who? The Romans. It's likely that Peter, when he paid taxes, paid it to Levi or someone like Levi, and he probably did not like the person he was giving the money to because the tax collectors oftentimes would say, your taxes are $100 when in reality it was only 50 because they would take the extra and line their own pockets. And so Levi's probably a person of means, ill-gotten means. It's interesting that you put Peter and his uh, blue-collar uh, fisherman buddies in the same room with Levi, but... Jesus goes to Levi just as he went to Peter and says what? Follow me. Jesus calls all kinds of people to follow him. Even the people that you don't like. If you look at verse 15 and 16, it gets even crazier. Verse 15, while he was reclining at the table in Levi's house. Wait, TV time out. Whose house are we in? Levi's house, okay, probably some nice digs. When we're in Levi's house, many tax collectors and what's the word? Sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples for there were many who were following him. When the scribes who were Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? I don't know why I'm saying it like that. It just sounds more insidious. Sinners generally, so this is not just a, a moral category. This is also people, this would have been a group of people, people called sinners, generally speaking, were a group of people who the religious establishment thought did not live up to their cultural norms. To put it another way, they were not good enough people to be in the in crowd with God. Tax collectors and sinners. These are the outsiders. These are the not religious enough people. These are the haven't cleaned up your act enough. Now, I want you to think just for a minute, too, that many of them probably had money. They probably had a better house than many of the other people that were following Jesus at the time, but it was ill-gotten gain. And here now, Jesus is doing what with them? Eating. 
Now, the reason that you all were shocked earlier when we talked about this, and I'm glad that you're culturally receptive to these things, is that eating with people is not just a a matter of maintaining sustenance consumption for one's body. When you would dine together with other people, what you were communicating was, you are my people. Who you ate with, who you dined with, it was a means of physically showing you are, we are in the same community together. We are community. We are together. We are one. So, so you may go to a restaurant, eat with a bunch of different strangers, but in this culture, to recline at table and dine with people would have been a long event, and it would have been a very close event. It would have been a very intimate setting, and it would have communicated, these are my people. I love these people. And you can see it in the Pharisees. The Pharisees were religious leaders. And they were watching all this happen. And what do they say? How could he be eating with them? The outsiders. How dare he eat? Did you hear how many times the word tax collectors and sinners got used? Mark uses it multiple times to help us see that the type, of Je- the type of people that Jesus was showing love, grace, and affection to were not only paralytics, but the outsider, tax collectors and sinners. Regardless of where you're at, regardless of how far from God you feel, this shows us one key truth, that we have sinned but Jesus forgives sins. He doesn't do it out of moral obligation or because you've cleaned up your act. He's forgiven sins because Jesus loves sinners. (laughs) And Jesus loves you. And so we have all sinned and Jesus forgives sins and Jesus loves sinners. And now for those of us that are, uh, if you're not a follower of Jesus yet or you're still trying to figure the whole Jesus thing out, I'm gonna yell at the Christians for a little bit. Feel free to listen in. Church, I'm gonna talk to you now. We have sinned, but Jesus forgives sin. And Jesus loves sinners, and so should you. Look at verse 15 again. While he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his. Jesus will take his disciples into the homes of people who everyone else thinks you should not go into. Jesus will take us into the homes of people where it will cost us a great deal of social capital to be in community with them. Jesus will take us into the homes of people who are the outcasts, the downtrodden, even the wealthy who are considered to be despising their community. Jesus will take us as his disciples into homes we don't want to go in so that we can show love to sinners because we have sinned. And Jesus forgives sins. And Jesus loves sinners. And so should we. Who's at your dinner table? I'm gonna, um, we'll, see, we'll see if old Pastor Caleb can get through this without completely breaking down emotionally, so pray for me. Tony Campolo is a sociologist from the East Coast and he tells this story and I'm gonna give you a um, 
kind of the Caleb Campbell version of it. So I'm not quoting, don't think I'm quoting, but this is all Tony Campolo, sociologist from the East Coast. It's all him. He had uh, flown to Honolulu for a speaking engagement, as one does. And because of the time difference from where he had flown from, he had landed and he woken up at 3.30 in the morning. Again, he's ready for breakfast. And so he begins to wander around in the, in the neighborhood, and everything is shut down except for on this side street, a greasy spoon that he walks into. And it's one of those kind of places where there's no booths, just the bar, the bar stools, and the little plastic menus that are stuck. You guys know what I'm talking about? Coated in grease. And he says he walked in hungry, and as he analyzes the situation, he says, I'll take the safest bet, a coffee and a donut. And so Harry comes out, what do you want? Take a coffee and a donut. Pours the coffee and then does this and takes the donut and gives it to him. (laughs) He says, and I sat there at the bar eating my dirty donut, drinking my coffee, when all of a sudden a group of prostitutes walk in having just finished their shift. And in this small place, they begin to gather around me and talk to one another. And the woman sitting next to me said, tomorrow's my birthday, I'll be 39. One of the other ladies says, what do you want? You want us to sing you a song? You want us to make you a cake? You want us to throw you a party? What do you want us to do? And she says, why do you gotta put me down? Why do you gotta be mean? I've never had a cake, never had a birthday party. I'm not expecting anything, why should I start now? And at that Tony, the sociologist, said, I know exactly what I'm going to do. And after this group of prostitutes finish uh, their coffee and leave, Tony, the sociologist, says to Harry, the business owner, hey, if I bring the decorations and the cake and the food, can, can we throw a party for her? And Harry said, who, Agnes? Yeah, I want to throw a party for Agnes. And so Harry says, Jane, get out here. This crazy guy wants to throw a party for Agnes. So Jane comes out, Harry's wife. She was also the cook. She said, oh, that's a wonderful idea. You wouldn't know this by her job, but Agnes is one of the kind people in our city. Now Harry, being the owner, says, but I'm taking care of the cake. Tony, the sociologist, says, oh no. (laughs) So the next day he goes to Kmart, and he gets all the decorations, and at 2.30 he comes to Harry's place. And he puts a great big giant happy birthday Agnes sign and all the balloons and everything. And then about 3.15 he says, somebody must have told the whole city because every prostitute in Honolulu had come in and are now packing around. Jane had spread the news that it was Agnes's birthday and we're gonna have a party for Agnes. And so here is Tony the sociologist with Harry and Jane and a room jam-packed full of prostitutes. And at 3.30 on the button, the door swings open and everybody yells, happy birthday, Agnes. You've never seen someone more flabbergasted in your life than Agnes was. And of course, they all begin to cheer and sing, happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday, dear Agnes, happy birthday to you. And as they finish the song, they bring out the cake with all the candles. And she's so overcome with emotion, she can't, she can't, she can't, She can't even blow out the candles. Hurry up and blow out the candles, Harry says. Come on, we're hungry. And so Harry blows out the candles for her. (laughs) 
Hurry up, Agnes, cut the cake, cut the cake, Agnes. She just stood there and looked at it. She turned and looked up and said, is it okay if I don't cut the cake? I've never had a cake before. I want to go home and show it to my mom. Tony, the sociologist, says, yeah, I mean, it's your cake. Do whatever you want. But, I mean, you're going to leave now? We just all got here. She said, don't worry. I just live two doors down. I just want to take the cake. I just want to go show it to my mom. I'll bring her right back, I promise. Sure, go ahead. And so she edges her way out the room with the cake, holding it like it's the Holy Grail. And so there's Tony, the sociologist, Harry, Jane, and a room of prostitutes in complete and utter silence. So Tony, not knowing what to do, said, why don't we pray? Makes perfect sense, right? I mean. <laughs> so they kind of stand together and, and crowd in, and Tony, the sociologist, begins to pray, Lord, we pray for Agnes. We pray that you would... <laughs> you would bring light into her darkness, you would bring healing from the horrible things that men have been doing to her since she was younger than she can remember. Reveal yourself to her. Let her know that you love her. Amen. And right as he says amen, there's Harry in his face. Hey, Campolo, you said that you were a sociologist. You're not. You're a preacher. What kind of a church do you preach at anyways? And Tony the sociologist says, you ever have one of those moments where you say just the right thing, maybe even like the spirit brings it to mind? What kind of a church are you a preacher at? And he says, the kind of church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. And Harry said, no, you don't. That kind of a church doesn't exist. If it did, I'd go to it. And wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all want to be a part of a church that throws birthday parties at 3.30 in the morning for whores? Jesus, in healing the paralytic and in bringing Levi in, says to us that's exactly the type of church that you are to be. Not just bringing soup and bringing water, but bringing joy and community. When Jesus dined with tax collectors and sinners, he showed every one of his disciples, go and do likewise. Friends, who are the people on your list of untouchables? It may be that Jesus is calling you as his disciple to enter in. There's an old saying, but it's a good one. All ground is equal at the foot of the cross because I am a sinner, but Jesus forgives sins because Jesus loves sinners, and so should you. Let's pray.